This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show Don't Double X. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday morning. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to be in the studio with you today to be talking science. We've got a whole heap lined up for us, a couple of fresh scientists for us, some young researchers ready to share some of their work Um but before we get into those, I better introduce you to the other person in the studio with me. We've got Nat joining us this morning. Morning, Nat. Good morning. And uh, how are things with you today? Oh, pretty good. Looking forward to another day off tomorrow. Oh, that sounds lovely. And uh, I think we should kick off with our regular start to Fuzzy Logic on a Sunday morning, which is this day in science, today being Sunday, the 12th of June. What happened on this day in science, Nat? Well, in 1913, the first animated cartoon made in the U.S. by Modern Techniques was released. This was um, invented by John Randolph Bray, and he uh, patented the process, producing a movie called The Artist's Dream, also known as The Dashund. And in this movie, a dog eats sausages until it explodes. So Bray created many improvements on the animation process, and one of the biggest innovations being the use of translucent paper to make it easier to position objects in successive drawings. Awesome stuff. Mm. Also on this day in science, in 1933, uh, the electrobasograph was first shown by Dr. R. Plato Schwartz of the uh, Myodynamics Laboratory in New York. And uh, this device could make a record on film of the walking gait of individuals. And it was actually used to distinguish between actual and spurious limps in damages claims for injuries. <laughs> so just working out whether you really had that workers' combo or not, <laughs> Although, admittedly, the laboratory did perform slightly more meaningful research as well, looking at the effects of cerebral palsy on muscle function. Nice. And then in 1979, the Gossamer Albatross flew across the English Channel. And the Gossamer Albatross was actually an aeroplane powered solely by human power, uh, specifically cyclist Brian Allen, who used a pedalling mechanism to power it. That's a long way to pedal, isn't it, it? across the channel? (laughs) But... Interesting stuff. And finally, on uh, 1982, on this day, uh, uh, Carl von Fritsch, a zoologist, uh, died. Um, Now, he studied communication among bees and various other insects and simple animals, and found some really interesting stuff. In fish, he demonstrated their amazing hearing um, and ability to distinguish colours and brightness. And he also showed in bees that they have the ability to recognise different odours and tastes, and uh, bees use polarised light for navigation, uh, even when the sun isn't out. And he also discovered the bees' famous waggle dance. Now, have you heard of the waggle dance? Now? I have not heard of the waggle it's dance. It's a pretty impressive thing. Bees basically <laughs> use their body movements to tell other bees in the hive where food is. So they do it like three times. It's kind of like in a little um, semicircle, and they waggle, 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 and then they turn around and go back to the start, and then waggle, waggle, waggle. And the way they waggle, the number of waggles, and the direction they're facing tells them how far and where the food is. Nice. Uh, Pretty interesting stuff. And for his efforts in this, Von Frisch won the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 1973. So there you go. This day in science. Some interesting stuff happening there. Um, and some interesting research I found this week, Nat. Um, now, are you a left or a right-hander? I am a right-hander. You're a right-hander. Yes. Well, I'm a left-hander, and I'd always heard the rumour um, that uh, 
the left-handers were smarter than right-handers, and um, we only make up 5% of the population, but we were, we were, for some reason, better because we used our left hand. Um, now, of course, back in the old days, we were called sinister and all those sorts of things, and you got whipped-caned by the teacher. Um, but unfortunately, I'm going to have to uh, downgrade my... Uh, uh, my superiority complex as a left hand, <laughs> because new research from Glinda's University in South Australia um, shows that left-hand people actually perform worse than right-handed people oh. in measures of cognitive ability, such as your IQ, with actually a level of disability similar to that of being <laughs> prematurely born. Hmm. Yeah, so, so I'm quite quite shocked by this. Um, it's really interesting. This research was led by Professor Mike Nichols, who's a director of the Brain and Cognition Laboratory in Flinders. And uh, the evidence, based on their analysis, ba- using lots of uh, databases of handedness and other attributes uh, in people in Australia, UK and the USA, just completely dispelled that myth that lefties were smarter. Um, in fact, yes, they studied members of the same family and confirmed that left-handed children do worse than their right-handed siblings. I, I don't know why. Like, he said that handedness is tied to left-right asymmetries in the brain. Mm-hmm. You know, you do use different sides of your brain for different parts of your body, different sides of your body, rather. Um, and uh, this is one of their, their big focuses in the laboratory. Um, you know, left and right should probably should be the same in humans, and some animal species it is the same, but... In humans, it isn't, and and there seems to be this large specialisation of the two sides of the brain. So one side does um, something, one thing, something else does the other. Um, the uh, professor Mike Nichols reckons that it's it's got something to do with our evolution, and you know, trying to squeeze as many eggs as possible right. into one basket, trying to get as many good things as we can in the uh, head. Uh, but yeah, it's it's really interesting, and you know, there's a, a general population uh, bias. Um, to, to different things. People pay more attention to the left-hand side of an object than the right, and um, this manifests itself as a tendency to deviate to the right in activities mm. that we do, um, such as you know steering a wheelchair and even um, goal-kicking in football, like the AFL. Um, you know, so when they're aiming for the midpoint between the two posts, they tend to kick slightly to the right. That's interesting. Hmm. I wonder what that means for people who are ambidextrous. Well, that that is an interesting point there, because mm. I, I I must admit I write with my left hand, but I do a lot of other things with my right hand. Mm. Um, like I, I play sports with my so right you're hand. Still, you're still smart, bro. I'm still smart. Yeah, I'm trying to claw <laughs> back some credibility here. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, it must be it must have some effect on the brain. I'm sure yeah. we're using both sides of it. Or even those who were forced to switch to right-handedness mm. during school and things. I want to. Hmm. Whether you develop that. Some avenues to look at there. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio. Now, Nat, have you ever heard of uh, Rudyard Kipling's Just So Stories? I have not. You have not? Oh, they're a great, they're a great series of stories. I actually purchased a book myself um, from a second-hand store, published in 1927, this book. I was quite mm-hmm. impressed. Um, but the, the, they're great stories because they tell how the camel got its hump you know, how the rhino got his skin, why the leopard has his spots. I have heard of these now. Yeah, yeah, tell me you've heard about. them. Well, yeah. today we're going to make up our own Just So story. Okay. And uh, <laughs> we're going to find out why the sawfish has a saw. And to help us tell our story today, we've got Barbara Veringer uh, with us. She's a researcher from the University of WA. Good morning, Barbara. 
Good morning. How are you? Good, good. It's fantastic to have you in here. And uh, we are going to answer that question of why a sawfish has a saw. But first of all, can you tell us what is a sawfish? It's, it's different to a swordfish, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So um, sawfish, they look like sharks. So they have a, they have a body that looks like a shark's body. But um, at, the, at, the, at the front of their head, they have that saw. And it's an extension of their, of their skull, basically. And it has teeth on its side. So it looks like a saw. Okay. So, and it's, is it teeth on both sides or just one side? Yeah, on both sides. On both sides. And the animals are actually rays. So they belong to the family of rays. Ah, fantastic. Awesome. Okay, so we've got a saw here on these fish. Now, what do they use their saw for? Well, for a long time it was believed that they use it to um, rake through the sand in, in search for prey that is hidden in the sand. But our research has found that they mainly use it to sense prey um, that is free-swimming in the water and to sense prey that is above their saw, basically. Okay, so the sensing prey using their saw... Um, how are they doing that? They have a few um, or two different sensory systems distributed along that saw. So one of those sensors allows them to detect electric fields. That's the main sense that I focused on in my work. And the other sense allows them to detect um, the movement of fish in the water surrounding them. Okay, so they're detecting movement down there to see what's actually going on. Now, a shark also has an electricity sense. Is, um, do they use their sense in the same way? Yeah, they do, but the distribution of, those, of that sense is what is important. So what it is is when you look at the skin of a shark or, or at the skin of a sawfish, um, that sense is you can see little pores in that skin, and each one of those pores is a little detector for electric fields. And how these pores are distributed over the skin gives us an idea of how the animal uses that sense. And in sawfish, they're just distributed mainly along the saw. Which I guess would be opposite to the rays who are, who are actually sifting along the, the bottom of the sand. Is that where that original thought came for the sawfish? That... Yeah, I think that's where it came from. Mm-hmm. And um, rays as well have a lot of those little pores around their mouth. Mm-hmm. And that's because when you think of a ray, it, it has the eyes on top, but it has the mouth underneath. So they can't actually see what they're eating. <laughs> and, that, and that's why they have to use that electric sense. And in sawfish, um, once, like most species occur in pretty murky waters, but one species in Australia in particular occurs in waters where you have visibilities around 10 centimetres, so they, they literally can't see what they're feeding on. Okay, so they're burrowing away down there using their saw. Um, now, is that similar to like a, a platypus? I know I've seen footage of, of platypus using their beak uh, or their bills, rather, to to um, to burrow for for food in the sand. Is that kind of what the sawfish is doing? Yeah, it's a similar. Um, you can definitely compare the two because it's the same sense that they're using yeah. with detecting those electric fields. But the additional thing what sawfish are doing is that they can use their saw and they can they can use it by swiping through the water basically and then attack those fish that they're trying to feed on. Oh, okay. So it's like a, a, a double-edged sword to use a bad <laughs> pun there. They can, they can sense and, and hit with it as well. Exactly. So it's like an, it's like an antenna, but then yeah. it's also like a weapon. Okay. Do they ever use their, their saws in an, um, you know, fighting or protection against each other or bigger fish? Um, well, we assume so, but um, that's not really something that I could study Okay. When, when I work with those animals, because you don't want to want to stress them out in captivity. No, no. I swear. <laughs> and they're actually in, are they endangered in Australia as well? The sawfish. 
Yes, they are, and they're endangered around the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, but in Australia, there's four species of, of starfish, and they used to be common, for example, along the east coast all the way down to Sydney. But now you find them in northern Australia, so in the northern part of the east coast. But their stronghold in Australia is the Gulf of Carpentaria. Okay. So it would be pretty important not to start setting them up fighting each other. We want to keep on uh, hold of as many of, as we can, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. But I think I think that saw also has an important function in when the animals are interacting with each other. Okay, like a display type? Yeah, uh, but also when, when, for example, when you see one of the sawfish trying to steal food from another one, it will use that saw to pin the other one on the floor. Okay. <laughs> so it can, it can get a little bit aggressive as well. Yeah, yeah. Which is how I kind of, I guess that's how, at first I would imagine the saw is used in that kind of aggressive sort of behaviour. But So it's interesting to know that they can use it to sense things um, around yeah, and in three-dimensional space too. So Yeah, exactly. And that, mm. that's one of the main things that we found basically that um, they, can, they can sense prey that swims above them and then they would also go into the water basically to, to attack that prey. Excellent. And um, how did you actually study the sawfish? Because you were saying that um, some of them are in are in very murky waters. Um, how did, did you study them in situ, or did you um, use captured sawfish? So I worked with a company um, in Cairns that collects these animals from the wild, and then they have them in their tanks for a few weeks to a few months, and then afterwards the animals get sent to public aquaria around the world. To put them on display, so to educate the people, but also to um, a, a later stage initiate captive breeding programs. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so so I've done that, but I've also done a major part of my of my research was to dissect animals that died accidentally in, because they got caught in fishing nets. Yeah. And from that, I could I could draw conclusions basically on how how their how their senses function and how they you know what they need to detect in their environment to survive. Okay, so um, so, so were you actually doing any um, detection of, of live animals, like detecting the electrical signals within the water or anything like that? Yes, but I didn't use live animals. What I used is I produced electric fields and then uh-huh. placed those in the tank at various positions and then see how the animals react to them. Ah, okay. So, so that means basically if you, if you present a sawfish with an electric field, then it, it, it is as if you present it with a fish that is swimming around in the water in that that the sawfish can't see it awesome so it is kind of like murky water yeah yeah no definitely um awesome stuff there so as well as um using their saw for splitting fish in half is there any other um behavioral aspects that you've sort of discovered through your research um well as i said the fact that they use the saw i think when they're interacting and I think that's also quite an important point. But I think the main point was that, that we found that they sense um, fish that swim above them. And as I said before, we believe that they use it to, to search through the sand. Mm. And so that's a completely different adaptation that we found. And is there a, a certain way that this, um, this research is going to help us um, conserve uh, the, the sawfish species? Um, yeah, I think so. Because one of the things is that, um, as I said, they get... They get quite often caught in fishing gear. Yeah. So that could be commercial fishing gear or recreational fishing gear. In Queensland, the animals are now a no-take species, which means you have to return them into the water and you have to try to return them alive. Mm-hmm. But I know that every now and then people, if they can't 
peel them out of the net, they might try and remove the saw and cut that off. Is and it, sorry, sorry, is it difficult then to find? You mentioned you got specimens from people who had caught them in nets. Is it is it difficult to have people actually, um, I guess, volunteer the specimens that they've caught accidentally? Um, I think now it's becoming more difficult because they are a no-take species. Mm. But as I said before, the specimens that I did my dissections with, they came from commercial fisheries and then they were passed on to fisheries observers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So to help them avoid these commercial nets and that sort of thing, would would an electric um, field around them help to deter them? That is one of the things that people are working on, yeah. Yeah. That's one one of the ways to prevent... In general, shark shark bycatch as well. But I think most of these methods are still being developed. But as I said, first we need to know how the animals are using that sense, and what is important for them to to sense, and how they, you know, how they detect these fields, and all of that. And then and then afterwards we can start developing devices basically to keep these animals out of the net. I guess there's that risk I, that the electric field could actually attract sawfish too. Would that? Yeah. Be- I think I think what what um, what these what these devices are trying to do is that if you have an animal swimming around or if you have an animal in search for food, that you produce a field that is so strong that initially it kind of like startles the animal and then makes it turn away from that net because a strong electric field would, you know. You could say, for example, that represents a crocodile or something like that, yeah. like a big predator. <laughs> that would be a huge crocodile, judging by the size of those commercial nets sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be like a wall of electric fields. But then if the animal sticks around in the area, then I think it could it could later on get attracted to it because then it realises, hmm, there's nothing actually there, so mm. I might try and bite it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, hopefully through your research, Barbara, we can sort of stop these sawfish running into the nets and uh, and uh, keep them going in our waters. Um, thanks very much for your time this morning. Thank you. All right. That was Barbara Veringer from uh, the University of WA, a researcher there, looking at sawfish and why they have their sore. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM 2XX Community Radio. Now, Nat, I've uh, got another question for you here. Have you ever heard of the term snake oil? Snake oil? Snake oil. I'll say no again to that one. You, you haven't heard of snake oil? You know, <laughs> someone selling snake oil that'll cure all your diseases, rub okay. it in, mm. ointment, that sort of thing. It's, I mean, it's a very old term. Um, and in the 19th century, when the Chinese arrived in America, they actually used snake oil as a cure or medicine. Um, and the reason it came about as being a, a very dismissive term of, of alternative medicines is because the American salesmen were trying to... Um, fob off the Chinese and saying their stuff was no good. But in factual fact, it was the American salesman who had the bad medicine and the Chinese salesman who had snake oil. That was the good stuff. And it was, it was really quite good for you. Um, it uh, helped your um, body in a whole lot of different ways. So really, snake oil, we use it for bad medicine, but it should be used for good medicine. And uh, 
Today I want to talk about um, some uh, snake oil, I suppose. Not real snake oil, though. We're actually talking about another natural product that could be quite good for our body to help it uh, regenerate nerve cells. Um, researchers out of Melbourne have shown that a plant-based compound can actually help read the brain and spinal cord. Now, to tell us more about this discovery, we're joined by Monash University PhD student Andrew Mott Rotter. Welcome along, Andrew. Morning, Rogers. Now, you're actually a... Uh, Biomaterials scientist. Now, can you tell us about what that means? Uh, we work with uh, different materials to to try and look at what cells, are, what material cells can grow on, and what materials can encourage cells to grow better. Okay. Um, so we we look at uh, various problems where you have uh, cells dying or being damaged, and uh, we attempt to create implants and um, various things like that um, that are biocompatible and can then uh, um, can then you know help help the cells to regrow and uh, help the person regain some of that lost function okay and so your research at the moment's been looking at um, uh, a specific biomaterial to help with uh, nerve cells yes yeah and uh, so now it's a uh, what's how do nerve cells normally repair themselves within the body? Well, there's, there's two separate parts to the nervous system. There's the central nervous system, uh, the brain and the spinal cord, and there's also the peripheral nervous system, which is the rest of your body, your arms, your legs, everything else going on around there. Um, the peripheral nervous system can regenerate itself to some degree by itself. Um, and so you can uh, do things like uh, graft nerves onto people who have had nerve damage injuries um, in their arms. Okay. The problem comes when you start getting injuries to the central nervous system um, because nerves in that area don't naturally regrow at all. Um, so you have things like uh, paraplegia or uh, strokes or Parkinson's disease all lead to permanent disability. Ah, I see. So, yeah, so, I mean, that's something we, you know, generally pretty used to as people. Once you're, you're quadriplegic, you just can't change that. Yeah, yeah, you're stuck with it. And that's because those cells just can't repair themselves in your body. Well, that's what we thought, actually, for, for many, many years. We thought it was a problem with the cells. Yeah. Um, what we've actually discovered, not us at Monash, I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. <laughs> um, but what the, the scientific community has discovered uh i think about 10 years ago was that it's not actually a problem with the nerves it's a problem with the environment around the nerves and so uh you have this situation where nerves die and as they die they release a lot of toxic chemicals into the environment and that then becomes a blockage um to, to prevent any nerves from regrowing so the body's basically making it hard for itself to, to regenerate there. Yes, yeah, it's, um, it's a bit of a pain. We're, we have some ideas of why it might be doing that, but, yeah, it's, it's uh, a bit of a pain for those of us who have uh, injuries to, to those um, what, areas. What, what is the, the thoughts for why the body would do that to itself? Um, I think there's some... Theories. I'm not. I'm not a great 
uh, I don't have a great amount of knowledge in this area, but I think there's some theories about uh, stopping the brain uh, remodeling itself too much. Okay. Um, and so, um, you know, if, if nerves could just regrow whenever they felt like it, you'd have people maybe that could, uh, could uh, have their whole nervous system change very quickly. And wow. so I think this is one of the thoughts is that this is something of a control mechanism. Um, yeah. I think that's the case. I, I probably shouldn't speculate. No, no, well, that. that's all right. I mean, it makes sense because our brain is a very plastic organ. It can change uh, quite a lot. But maybe we should get into something you do know about, which is um, <laughs> why your um, plant compound that uh, you've isolated uh, is helping the, the central nervous system nerve cells regrow. Yeah, well, so, okay, we um, we did a, a bit of an investigation on a, a material that is uh, a derivative of the tamarind seed from the tamarind plant. Those of you who are um, familiar with Asian cooking, I think, would uh, be all quite familiar with tamarind. I've got, I've got Nat um, nodding along here, our little master chef. I tried chef. some. I tried yeah. some this, earlier this year, some tamarind. <laughs> what does it taste like? Um... It's like an extreme lemon. <laughs> it's kind of very, I guess, sour is the... Okay. So it's, yeah, it's quite strong. Yeah. Okay, and, and this tamarind's going to help our body, Andrew? Well, yes. We, we, um, uh, so we get a material that's extracted from the tamarind from uh, a pharmaceutical company, uh, and we've done some modifications to it to make it um, suitable for cells to grow on. Um, and then uh, we implanted that into some animal brains, and we found that actually uh, we could get nerves to regrow within the brains um, within about two months. Oh, wow, so helping uh, regenerate quite quickly there. Yeah, yeah. yes. Uh, um, I mean, yes, obviously that's... Um, uh, Possibly not full functional recovery, but that's uh, so we had our, our full implant was completely filled with nerves at that stage. So that's really exciting, really, isn't it? Because that, that could have implications for um, things like Parkinson's or Huntington's disease, where you actually lose some of that, um, what would you call it, the nerves and, and things like that? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's two of the diseases that uh, our group down at Monash does specifically uh, aim to, to be able to do something about. Um, we've, we've got uh, quite a range of um, those sort of afflictions that we, we look at, and of course each of them is subtly different, um, but there is a certain amount of crossover between them, and so we, uh, we look at nerve regeneration in um, several several different uh, afflictions like that and uh, see what we can do about it. Hmm. Yeah. So basically your um, compound that you're injecting into the body there, it's kind of providing uh, a, a fertiliser, like, like if we had you know, plants living in bad soil, they can't really grow, but you provide some fertiliser and they can um, suddenly grow better. Is that, is that a fair um, yeah. analogy? Yeah, it's, that's, that's fairly close to the mark, I guess. Um, we're, we're trying to provide an environment 
where the nerves are encouraged to regrow. So um, I guess, yeah, taking the fertiliser analogy, say you were trying to plant your plants in some uh, very poor soil and they wouldn't grow at all, um, we're changing that environment um, using uh, this material um, to, to make it more amenable to, to nerves growing. So how long, I mean, you mentioned this has been done in animal cells uh, at the moment. It, what's, what's the likelihood we're going to get this going um, with humans or get it moving to that point? How long do you think? Yeah, it, it's probably going to be uh, quite a while before we see anything uh, generally available for sure. It's, mm. um, you know, it, it's quite a young field, the whole um, neural regeneration thing, because as I you know, said before, uh, we did only find out that it was possible mm. relatively recently. Um, it could be quite a long time, um, talking a decade or more. Yeah. Um, there are uh, various things going on around the world with, with neural regeneration. There's some people uh, trialling stem cell implantation as well. Um, I think that's over in America with a company called Geron. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of uh, exciting things happening in yeah, the, the of, regeneration field at the moment. Mm, but, of course, I'm guessing with stem cells, there'd be the whole controversial aspect towards stem cells, and we're not going to get into that debate now. But Yeah, um, <laughs> we better not get into that one. <laughs> but using using plant compounds, I suppose, as a... As a uh, a, a better alternative, uh, a, a safer, or well, not safer, that's probably not the right word, but, you know, um, more, uh, something pe- people are more likely to, to accept? Possibly. Um, I mean, they're an, an alternative, and they may even end up uh, working together at some time in the future. I'm not sure um, where that could possibly go. Yeah. But, um, yeah, look, we're, we're, we're trying our best to, um, to create an environment where the nerves can regenerate. Um, and so I think, yeah, one of the problems with the stem cell implantation is you do get a lot of the cells that you implant dying anyway. Um, so there is some room there for uh, our materials to be used, even if stem cells have decided to be the way to go. Definitely, and I'm just curious about this plant material you've chosen. How did you how did you pick the, this compound to use? Like, was it uh, trial and error, or, or is there a way you can kind of tell that it might do the job you want in the first place? Um, so, what we actually picked this material for is it has the property that it's uh, what's called thermally gelling. So that means that we can make the material, um, and if we keep it at a cold temperature, say, you know, four degrees in the fridge, um, the materials are liquid. Uh, so what we can then do is inject the material at this cold temperature as a liquid, and it then uh, completely fills the, the area uh, that's been damaged. Um, okay. And then know, it, ma- it makes quite good contact with the sides, which is one thing that's particularly important mm. with the sides of the, the wound. And so then, when um, it warms up in the body, does it change its its state? Yeah. So then, then when it once it warms up uh, and it reaches 
37 degrees, um, it actually turns into a, a full-on gel, um, which is then what the nerves will then interact with. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, it sounds um, like some amazing stuff, and hopefully um, we can see this research progress so we can we can start you know regenerating in humans and and offer some some hope to those people that do have central nervous system damage yeah certainly yeah. well thanks very much for coming on andrew uh, sharing some of your research with us and uh yeah hopefully this uh extreme lemon as uh <laughs> nat put it the tamarind uh can, can start helping uh people regenerate thanks again andrew no not a problem <laughs> this is Fuzzy Logic here on uh, 2XX Community Radio, and uh, we have uh, been talking about sawfish and plant gels today, and uh, earlier too we were talking about um, today uh, is the anniversary of the death of Carl von Frisch, who won his Nobel Prize for discovering, uh, or rather, um, describing the behaviour of bees and their famous waggle dance. Um, and there's actually some research in camera that's been looking at bees recently. Um, not at their waggle, but uh, the way they find their way home. And uh, this research has shown that bees can actually find their way home from 11 kilometres away over several days' travel by, simply by their ability to remember landmarks and read information from the sky. Now, this research is out of the uh, Australian uh, Research Council's Centre of Excellence in Vision Science and uh, also the Australian National University here in Canberra. And uh, basically, yeah, everyone kind of knew that the honeybee uh, was pretty good at navigating across country. And what they found is that uh, this creature actually uses the position of the sun, the polarisation of the light, as we mentioned before from von Frisch's research, but he also uses... Uh, a panoramic view of the horizon and landmarks that they can see, including towers, mountains, and lakes. Now, this research uh, was performed by a team, and to do it, they actually caught uh, forager bees as they returned to their hives and displaced them uh, in a black box. So basically, you know, <laughs> like the old off-the-street mugging I see, you see in the movies where they put the paper bag over their head and chuck you in the van. They did that to these poor bees, um, and took them uh, away from their hive uh, in a whole lot of different directions, uh, about 13 kilometres away in north, south, east and west directions. Uh, and so these bees were released around Canberra, uh, where they could actually use landmarks, you know, such as Black Mountain, uh, Mount Ainsley, Red Hill and, and Lake Burley Griffin to help them navigate. Um, I'm not sure whether Parliament House, the giant flag, is in there too. I'm sure it mm, would. It'd why be. Not? noticeable on the skyline <laughs> bees probably wouldn't have any idea what it actually is but they could certainly notice it there and um, what they found was that from uh, four kilometers onwards uh, honeybees homing from the eastern direction return to their hives sooner than uh, bees coming from the north west and south uh, and the bees were released from seven kilometers and further only though Sorry, and then the bees that were released from further than seven kilometres away, uh, only those from the east actually found their way back successfully to the hive. Um, so unfortunately there's a whole lot of lost bees out there wandering <laughs> around looking for their home. But the eastern ones found their way back. Um, now the researchers believe that this is because bees released from the east uh, could see Black Mountain in the opposite direction. And uh, so they could see that landmark and navigate towards it. Uh, now, it also helped if they were released in the early afternoon when the sun was situated in the west uh, 
because that helped their navigation as well. Um, now, normally in their forage trips, uh, on the way out, the honeybees uh, store direction and, and distance information in their brain. And so then when they come back, they just reverse that and go back to their, towards their hive. Um, and obviously they're pretty good at doing that because, as I said before, there's the, uh, the good old waggle dance where they communicate the direction and distance to their, their pals back at the hive. Mm-hmm. So they're very good at taking this in. Um, and, uh, but by catching them uh, and putting them in a black box, this basically reset all their information back to zero. Uh, so the bees were deprived of their directional information. And uh, so they, they, researchers have confirmed here that the bees were relying solely on their knowledge that they've gained in, in general flying and not some specific stuff that they found. Uh, now, now, the most, well, not the most interesting part, but one of the funniest parts of this research, I find, is that um, to track the bees' journey, the, uh, the researchers actually used radio frequency identification tags on each bee. <laughs> they catch this poor little bee with a tiny chip on its back. Uh, just that delayed them a little bit? Probably. That extra weight? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know, relative to them, it would be quite heavy, mm. wouldn't it? It'd be like having mm. a fully laden rucksack on your back yeah. or something like that. Piggybacking your little brother or sister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, they used these t- ID tags to... Um, record the exact arrival time of individually targeted bees um, by placing a, a receiver at the hive, so they, they counted when the bee came back, uh, which, which was good for the researchers because it meant they didn't have to sit by the hive counting bees for mm-hmm. hours on end. <laughs> um, yeah, so fantastic stuff. Now, it did take them a while to reach their hive, two to three days, um, but their ability to rena- retain the knowledge of the landscape and direction was just amazing. And... Um, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating because the, the honeybee only has a brain the size of a small seed, but it can still hold enough information to uh, get them back home again. So there you go. Do we have a number to call in case anybody does find a uh, <laughs> missing bee? Yeah, 1800 Buzz Buzz, I think, <laughs> is where you need to go. <laughs> We're almost done for today on Fuzzy Logic. It's been a pleasure to have you listening. Um, If you did enjoy today's show, you can catch us on the podcast. Just go to iTunes and type in Fuzzy Logic, or you can go to Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com. We did have some fantastic interviews today from uh, Barbara and Andrew talking about some of their research. And they came to us from Fresh Science, uh, which is a national event uh, designed to bring uh, young researchers together and in contact with the general public. Um, Now, that was held all throughout uh, last week uh, around Melbourne and other places. Um, And if you want to know more details about that, check out freshscience.org.au. So we're certainly very grateful to Fresh Science for helping us out with our guests today. Now, finally, before we let you go into the working week on Monday, I thought I'd bring up one last bit of research, Nat. Uh, Now, do do you sit at your desk for your job? I do. You do? I do. Well, you're in a bit of trouble. Um, I sit at my desk as well, and it's, it's concerning me because it, it, research uh, from the West Australian Institute for Medical Research has found that if you work 10 years or more behind a desk, you've increased your risk of bowel cancer. I yeah. quit. So, oh, <laughs> no, it's all right. You don't need to quit. Um, there are some ways to, uh, to stop it. Um, to, to look at this research, they actually grouped a whole heap of... Um, 
jobs together, from sedentary office jobs to light activities such as teachers and hairdressers, uh, medium activity, mechanics, nurses, heavy activity, plumbers and farmers, and very heavy activity, which are miners and firefighters, to examine the risks of sedentary work. And uh, they found that if you spend 10 or more years working at a desk, you've got almost twice the risk of distal colon cancer. Um, so a bit of a concern if you are working in the office. Um, the, the interesting part about the finding was that, uh, this was independent of recreational physical activity, uh, and the increased risk was even seen among, uh, desk workers who did a lot of physical activity outside the workplace. So I think it's just that sitting for a long period, um, you know, and that's a risk factor in many diseases. So for all the office workers out there, it's uh, very important that you get up and uh, take a break. In fact, one of the suggestions given by the researchers uh, was to get up from your chair, what a good idea, and walk down the corridor to talk to colleagues rather than sending an email or making a Mm -hmm. phone call and uh, even putting the printer outside your office so you have to make the short walk and get up from your desk and go to your printer. So there you go. So for all you desk workers out there, get up and go for a walk around the office. Um, Make a race of it. Enjoy it. Have something fun to do. And uh, enjoy your Sunday as well, listeners. Have a whole lot of fun. We'll be back here on uh, 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio next week with your Science on a Sunday. Uh, Thanks very much for coming in, Nat. Thanks for having me, Brod. It's been a pleasure. And uh, my name is Broderick, and this has been Fuzzy Logic for this Sunday.